0: The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, where on every episode of the show, I am determined to bring you back to your superpowered self now you are not going to believe who's on the show with me today this is an honor it's a treat i've interviewed him before but i am absolutely thrilled to welcome dr dale bredesen to the show welcome to the show dr bredesen i feel like he doesn't need an introduction but i'm going to read a little bit just in case you've been under a rock and you don't know who he is. But Dr. Bredesen is a professor in the Department of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, of course in Los Angeles. He's founding president and CEO, Professor Emeritus and Buck Institute for Research on Aging in California. He has received his undergraduate degree from Caltech, his medical degree from UCSF. He was a postdoc fellow in the laboratory of the Nobel laureate uh, professor Stanley Prusiner. He was a faculty member at UCLA from 1989 to 1994, then was recruited to direct the program, program on aging by the Burnham Institute. He then went on, he returned to UCLA as a director of the Easton Centers for Alzheimer's Disease Research. The Bredesen Laboratory, which we're going to talk about today, studies basic mechanisms underlying the neurodegenerative processes and the translation of this knowledge into the effective therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions. Dr. Bredesen has been a leading researcher in this work. We are actually using a lot of his work in our clinic at Center Spring MD, so that's why I'm thrilled, excited, and overjoyed to welcome him to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bredesen.
1: Thanks, Dr. Taz. Thanks for having me on.
0: You are welcome. So Alzheimer's, you know, a lot of us out there think it's not gonna affect us, think it's not something we're gonna have to deal with until we start having cognitive decline or one of our beloved family members has cognitive decline. And right now in practice, I have a range of patients, all ages, it's a family practice, and we will see everybody from the very severely affected Alzheimer's patient to the very young 30 to 40 something year old who's suddenly forgetting things, for, you know, just having, having trouble remembering their words. And usually they'll resort to quick fixes, medications in the beginning, but really, my opinion, and I'm sure yours, is there's something deeper going on underneath all of that. What's happening in the world of Alzheimer's? Why does it seem like this disease is escalating? My personal opinion, I don't know if it's based on fact or not, but that there are signs that are showing up earlier and earlier. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Uh, there is a clear, clearly a rise. Uh, this has been the disease that has been on the rise while others Um, such as stroke, for example, have declined. And so this is a huge problem. And and Professor Christine Yaffe from UCSF published a paper just a few years ago showing that if you actually look carefully at autopsy data, Alzheimer's has now become the third leading cause of death in the United States. It's actually uh, number one in the UK uh, for women um, it huh. has now passed both cancer and cardiovascular disease. So this is a huge problem. It's on the rise. And you mentioned it uh, about seeing things that, that you may not have seen before. And one of the things that's really surprised me, when I was training, uh, way this is way back in the 80s, uh, we virtually never saw anyone who was in their 50s. We would see people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, pretty typical story. Um, and yet, in, unless it was that rare, less than 5% that are truly the autosomal dominant familial Alzheimer's, those are the uncommon ones. But with that uh, exception, we wouldn't see it. Now, all the time, one of the most common things we see is the 52-year-old woman who has Alzheimer's disease. Yep. And so there really is what we think of as a hidden epidemic, essentially hidden below the umbrella of Alzheimer's disease. This is very unfortunate.
0: So and it strikes me as interesting that you're saying that you're seeing it as, or it's the number one disease in the UK. Why do you think it's affecting women in protect, in particular? And then at that age in particular, what do you think is happening there?
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, and it's been somewhat controversial. You know, why is this more common in women? Um, one of the things that's been suggested is that one of the things that actually engenders that response, and we if we look at the brains of Alzheimer's patients, and we look at the molecular biology, there is a change in the balance of signaling by a receptor, APP, amyloid precursor protein. And you can literally cleave this in one way, and get supportive molecules, SAPP alpha and alpha CTF. You can take this same molecule and cleave it in a way that actually signals downsizing. And one of the ways to get it to move toward the downsizing is a sudden withdrawal of trophic support, whether it's from brain derived neurotrophic factor, estradiol, uh, Mm -hmm. testosterone, vitamin D, uh, or whether it's from various uh, nutrients And so, of course, as you know, in women, there tends to be a more rapid fall off of the sex steroids such as estradiol than there is with men when they go through andropause. It's a little more slow in the decline. So that's been suggested as one of the potential reasons. But the bottom line is no one knows for sure why it's almost two to one for women when it comes to Alzheimer's. And by the way, it's almost two to one for men when it comes to Uh, both Parkinson's disease uh, and ALS. So some differences, although of course, both genders get all of those neurodegenerative diseases.
0: So for all of you watching i hope you caught that that's so important we focus a lot on women's health on this show although we know that we're very concerned about the family as a whole because many of us are responsible but it's two to one affecting women that means somebody you know out there can be affected by this disease and it can be devastating have we been able dr brideson to pinpoint the hormone or the shift that is happening for women for example in clinic a lot we'll see a decline in pregnenolone or progesterone derivatives, uh, one of the female hormones. And that's where I'll see, when I get my labs back, I'll see that those levels are really low. They're correlating to this patient sitting in front of me saying, like, I can't remember things. I'm forgetting words. We replace it. They seem to be better. But again, that's not the Alzheimer's patient necessarily, right? That's just the sort of layer one. Are you seeing that in the Alzheimer's patients as well? And get maybe tell us a little bit about what the evidence is saying in terms of you know what we can do for Alzheimer's early, when we should be thinking about it, and what might be a checklist for somebody out there watching today or listening today so that they can kind of have that locked in their mind if they're already sitting with a family member who, uh, who is battling this disease.
1: Right, you know, I think one of the most important messages you can get out to everyone is to come in as early as possible. Uh, So many people are waiting and and in fact it's been uh, certainly our fault as a medical community. We keep saying to people there's nothing that can be done and therefore you know come in late, don't you don't need to come in early and that's just the opposite of the truth. So in fact the armamentarium for Alzheimer's disease is actually quite extensive. There's a tremendous amount that can be done. Now you mentioned uh, the the, uh, female hormones for example. And there was a very nice study published out of the Mayo Clinic a number of years ago where they looked at people who had had oophorectomies who were at various ages. And what they found is that for those people who had them at the age of 40 or earlier and who did not have sufficient support, hormone replacement therapy, they doubled their risk for Alzheimer's disease, even though Mm. the Alzheimer's itself came on years later in terms of the symptoms. And we know now that the pathophysiology begins about 20 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So you're absolutely right. We want to get people to come in as early as possible. We recommend that anyone who's 45 years of age or older get a cognoscopy. Just as you get a colonoscopy when you turn 50, everybody knows that. It's a good idea to get a cognoscopy and that's fairly straightforward. Some blood tests that identify critical things. You mentioned pregnenolone as an example. Right, DHEA is another one. Various nutrients, trophic factor support, and markers of inflammation. These are all critical. Secondly, simple online cognitive assessment. There are a number of ways to do that. You can do it, for example, with CNS vital signs, you can do MOCA tests, things like that. And if you're completely asymptomatic, that's really all you need at the time to tell you, how are you doing and are you at risk for Alzheimer's? Critical, just like we all know what our cholesterol is, we should be knowing these other variables as well. And then if you have any symptoms, please include an MRI with volumetrics because you wanna know your hippocampal volume. Uh, That's an important thing to know. So it's so a fairly straightforward to get a cognoscopy, and that's what everybody should do.
0: Cognoscopy, guys, I hope you guys heard that and we're taking notes and got that checklist down of the different things to check out. MRIs you mentioned, and also, you know, I know what my audience is thinking, what is the average age of onset of Alzheimer's? Because if you're saying come in 20 years below, a lot of us are sitting here doing that math, like this is when I need to come in. What age are you seeing uh, the true diagnosis of Alzheimer's being made officially? And when do you recommend people get or start getting this cognoscopy, just like we have recommendations for colonoscopy that got dropped recently down to 45, when do you recommend that uh, folks come in?
1: Absolutely. So if you follow what is your risk for Alzheimer's, it continues to go up with aging, literally until you're above 90. So if Mm -hmm. you look at people when they're 65, you're talking about, about one out of 20 or so. But by the time you get above 85, you're now talking nearly one in two. So it's much more common. Now, there's some argument about it plateauing when you get above 90, that's not so clear, but there are certainly people who are over 100 who don't have any sign of Alzheimer's disease. So we recommend therefore that people get a cognoscopy when they turn 45 or if they're older than 45. And here's why. We used to think of this as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. Well, now you've got to subtract 20 years for when the pathophysiology begins. So this is really a disease of your 40s, 50s, and 60s. And if you've got hypertension when you're in your midlife, you are at increased risk. If you have insulin resistance in your midlife, you are at increased risk. If you have metabolic syndrome, you are at increased risk. And you can go on and on. These are critical variables. You can literally trace these down to the signaling from APP to suggest whether you're on the good side or the bad side.
0: All right, so this is another disease, unfortunately, that we need to be thinking about in our 40s, not waiting till our 60s to really come in and get evaluated. And, you know, you've talked about some of the comorbid conditions or some of the things that predispose you to maybe uh, having a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. I get a lot of questions, I'm sure you do, too, that, well, I have the gene or I don't have the gene. How strongly do genetics play into this? Because I have some theories on that, I'm curious to see what you think. Is it you have the gene and the gene gets activated and that's your risk for Alzheimer's? Or if you don't have the gene, you'll never get it, what do you think?
1: Very good point. And so The genetics are not your destiny, and that's the most important thing to right. understand. So the most, as you know, there are, there are about three dozen different genes that confer some risk for Alzheimer's disease. But there is one that's the common one, which is of course ApoE4. And so ApoE, apolipoprotein E, it's a little mm-hmm. bit like your butcher. It's the guy that carries around the fat Uh, And it had been very unclear for years why that confers risk. what we published a number of years ago is that this thing is very interesting. It's not just your butcher carrying around the fat. It's also your senator. It actually goes into your nucleus and changes the programming of your cells toward a more pro-inflammatory state which is very Mm -hmm. helpful if you are exposed to microbes and you're eating raw meat and those sorts of things, which were happening millions of years ago in the early hominids, but in fact are not as common today. So if you have zero copies of that, and so for example, I checked myself, I'm an ApoE33, which is like vanilla. It's the the most common one. Um, Mm -hmm. I have about a 9% risk during my lifetime of developing Alzheimer's. Again, there are other genes that affect that but across the board. If you have a single copy of APOE4, your risk is about 30%. And if you Mm -hmm. have two copies, and by the way, one copy, 75 million Americans, two copies, about 7 million Americans, and the vast majority don't know it, then in fact, your chance of getting Alzheimer's is well over 50%. So it's more likely that you will get it than that you will avoid it. Now, none of these people should get it. That's that's the truth. In right fact, i try to remind everyone an right. active prevention program so that we don't see we literally can make alzheimer's disease a rare disease which is what it should be
0: absolutely and i i want to talk more about prevention in just a minute but can you make a diagnosis of alzheimer's if you do not have the apoe4 gene is there do you ever make that diagnosis where somebody does not have those genetic markers
1: Oh, absolutely. So as I mentioned, you still, if you don't have ApoE4, you still have about a 9% chance. So about one out of 11 okay. that you will still get it. Um, and in fact, the people who, have, uh, who are ApoE4 negative have the additional issue that they tend to get it uh, what can be a more malignant form in that it's often associated with specific toxins. Whereas the people who are ApoE4 positive are actually often, especially early on, easier to turn around in that it's more about inflammation, uh, which is something that can be addressed. Uh, And I should, you know, I should add there there was a nice study quoted actually by Ivor Cummins uh, on the fact that if you look at cardiovascular disease, people with ApoE4 have more cardiovascular disease, but if if they do not have insulin resistance, they actually have less cardiovascular disease. A somewhat surprising outcome because it's always been claimed they have more cardiovascular disease. So in fact, it, it, the, whether or not you have insulin resistance, whether you not, or not you have ongoing systemic inflammation, these are critical players in your risk, both for cardiovascular disease and for Alzheimer's
0: disease. Fascinating stuff, and that's a great segue to the topic of prevention, because at the end of the day, this isn't a disease without hope, this isn't a disease without solutions or things that we can do, but the key, the magic, is to come in early and to be educated early. Talk a little bit about what prevention of Alzheimer's really means, you know, it's not doing crossword puzzles, guys, that's not the answer, but what does it really mean, and what does it really involve, and why maybe a holistic, functional, integrative approach is the way to go and part of the reason why people aren't getting answers in their routine doctor visits
1: right it's a good point uh so i was not trained in the area of integrative and functional medicine i was very classically trained as a neurologist and neuroscientist and so our 30 years in the lab have shown us that if you actually trace the molecular pathways what you find is that what is driving this disease is not a single variable there is actually this beautiful balance that I mentioned, and that is impacted by many different things. So that leads us right to functional and integrative medicine and says that, yes, these are like, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's Parkinson's, whether it's uh, other diseases, cancer, things like that, these are complex, chronic illnesses, very different than the illnesses that were killing us in the 20th century that were simple illnesses like pneumococcal pneumonia and tuberculosis. These have multivariables and so therefore you actually have to identify those and you have to address those. So we discover that there are subtypes of Alzheimer's, ones therefore that in which the predominant driver is either inflammation, different pathogens, insulin resistance. Uh, trophic withdrawal, hormonal withdrawal, specific toxins you're exposed to, vascular abnormalities. So the good news is you can identify those for each person. So just as you would look at your lipid profile to say, ah, you know, am I at risk of having cardiovascular disease? And then you can look further with a, you know, with a calcium score, for example, to see what's actually down the road. You can do the same thing now with Alzheimer's. It's a little more complicated because there are more variables that input. Right. So you want to know your inflammatory status. You want to know various pathogens you may have been exposed to. So if you look in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, what do you find? You find P. gingivalis from poor dentition. You find herpes simplex from the lip. Mm. You find molds from the sinuses. You find Borrelia from Lyme disease. So all of these things are potential contributors, and you want to identify those, and then you want to get on appropriate treatments so that you prevent the cognitive decline. And let me mention a common finding. So we had a woman who came in a number of years ago, and she said, you know, my this is important in my family. Many people have gotten Alzheimer's. Uh, she turned out to be APOE4 positive. And she Mm -hmm. said you know i'm here for prevention well when we actually did her testing she was past prevention she had a Moca score of 23. you should be scoring 28 to 30. and so she already had significant mci mild cognitive impairment Mm -hmm. wow she went on the protocol she's now at 30 out of 30 which is perfect and doing very very well and she said you know i didn't realize how bad things were until they got better And of course, that's a common finding. You find out how bad things were when you're now much more functional. So this is why we recommend everybody, please get on prevention or at the worst, earliest reversal.
0: I think that's so fascinating, and it just drives home that point of how how much the body can heal itself and how yeah. the brain is plastic. There's that concept of neuroplasticity. If you provide it what it needs, then you really do see tremendous turnaround. Out of the different categories, Dr. Bredesen, this is, again, a selfish question just for me in practice, quite honestly. But there's inflammation. There's oxidative stress where the brain's not getting the oxygen it needs for those cells and for all those mitochondria, guys. Those are all the cells floating around in the brain that help the, help power your brain. You know, there's toxicity, which is becoming an increasing concern in our environment. There's cardiometabolic factors and health. Um, There's medications. There's hormones. You know, when you put, uh, there's gut health. When you have this table of all the different things that any given patient could be dealing with and struggling with, is there one that you can link more strongly to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's more than anything else? You know, are there one or two of those that, you know, for the person out there like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose right now. Are there one or two things that you would say, hey, really focus in, is this an issue for you?
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because it really gets at the crux of the issue here, which is that in the past, we were able to treat illnesses with a drug and nothing more. Because, for example, if you look at pneumococcal pneumonia, yes, whether you have alcohol on board makes a difference. Yes, whether you have diabetes makes a difference. Yes, whether your B cells are functioning and you've got the appropriate immune system, these all make a difference. But the pneumococcus is so much more important than anything else that if you just give penicillin or amoxicillin or cephalosporins and kill that, you can get away with having problems in the others. In Alzheimer's, it's not that way. There are many features and they all contribute, and therefore there's not one dominant one and you can't just say, okay, the drug is just gonna do one thing. If you look at the various people that are getting it, probably the most common thing across the board is insulin resistance, is people. Wow,
0: okay.
1: The the reality, as you know very well, we were not evolutionarily designed to eat the diet that we currently eat. And so when we consume so many simple carbohydrates, so little on the fiber side, and we have chronically high insulin levels, this contributes to many things from obesity to type two diabetes, to metabolic syndrome, hypertension, and of course, Alzheimer's disease. And so I think that's one that's critical, but I would urge people, please look at nocturnal oximetry. That's turning out to be very important. Whether someone has, people say, well, I don't think I have sleep apnea, so don't worry about it. Right. In fact, dropping right. your oxygen is critical. Please consider a continuous glucose monitor just for two weeks. See if there's something that's spiking and something that's giving you hypoglycemia. Both of these things can contribute to cognitive decline. Please check the dentition. You can do an oral DNA test and see if you've got specific mm. pathogens that may be contributing. Please check the HSCRP. See if you have systemic inflammation. Please check gut health. You know, there's a there's a checklist that's, that's in the book that you mentioned, uh, and you can actually uh, look pretty clearly at what are the critical variables that could be driving this process. And again, you can make it so that nobody should get this disease. This should truly be a rare disease.
0: Such great information. I mean if for any of you who uh, didn't catch all of that insulin resistance you know really where we are in the state of the high insulin levels we're storing constantly it's Alzheimer's by some has been called the type 3 diabetes it's really one of the major drivers of this particular disease and that we can screen we can look for that early we can find it we can turn it around when it comes to prevention other than checking and looking for all this stuff which I know you've done an amazing job with the Bredesen protocol in terms of thinking holistically through all the different Factors thinking through that smorgasbord of different things that can cause Alzheimer's. Is there a diet that you recommend across the board for prevention? Are there like three key supplements that you would recommend if someone is just jumping into this, just putting their toe in the water, but they want to start? Where would you where would you kind of point them?
1: Absolutely, there are some basics, um, and of course, uh, you know, my wife, as I mentioned in the book, my, my wife said. 25 years ago when we were early on in our research said you know whatever you guys find that's driving the process of neurodegeneration it's going to have something to do with basic things like diet exercise sleep stress things like this and I, at the time, I said to her, no, 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 we're going to find one molecule, one right. fold, one right. specific thing, we're going to get a drug and then it. it's going to be gone. And of course, I should have listened to her uh, all those years ago. She was right. She was uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, Absolutely. So that diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, and some basic supplements, uh, hormone balancing, uh, and nutrients and things like that are critical. So diet, you want to have a, at least for, for brain support, You want to have a uh, a, a plant rich, mildly ketogenic and the ability, the ability to generate ketones. And we'd like ultimately for it to be endogenous ketones. But at the beginning, you can start with things like MCT oil or exogenous ketones, ketone salts, ketone ester to help get that ketone level up because your brain needs those ketones as you're now getting off the carbs. So plant rich uh, mildly ketogenic, high fiber, high fats, intermediate protein, low carbohydrates, and very low simple carbs is the diet. We call it KetoFlex 12-3. And don't forget the fasting. Fasting is actually so critical. You
0: Wonderful. need that
1: 12 to 16-hour fast each night. Uh, helps you for autophagy. Uh, helps you to, uh, to get into some mild uh, ketosis. Critical. Then exercise. Uh, both uh, strength training uh, and some aerobic exercise. And these actually help your ketosis. They help your insulin sensitivity, which is so critical. Uh, And then uh, sleep. Uh, Please check your oximetry at night. Please get seven to eight hours of sleep. Good sleep hygiene. Get in the dark, take some melatonin if you want to. That's all fine, but you want to have good sleep. And so many people avoid that. It's a critical determinant of cognitive decline and then stress levels. And then, you know, as a scientist, if you had told me 15 years ago that I would be telling people about stress and joy and meditation, I would have laughed. But it turns out that these things are critical. They do impact your neuroplasticity. As you mentioned earlier, neuroplasticity critical. This is really a disease of neuroplasticity. And so uh, stress levels, very important. And then brain training and doing the brain training on the backbone of these other things helps it to be more effective. And so we recommend 30 minutes, three or four times a week, uh, the brain training. And then there are some basic, as you said, there are some basic supplements. Uh, And again, we start with, please make sure you're in some mild ketosis. We're looking for 1.0 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate as the the target for your ketosis. And you can generate one millimolar pretty readily Uh, endogenously if you simply have the appropriate fasting, the appropriate uh, high-fat, high-good fats uh, diet and things like that. Uh, And so um, then beyond that, uh, omega-3s, you know, a a gram of DHA um, and also EPA, uh, very, very helpful. Making sure that your vitamin D uh, is up to an appropriate level People argue back and forth: Is that 50 to 80? Is that 40 to 50? Right. Whatever we like to get people into the 50 to 80 range, uh, but getting them to an appropriate level uh, is very helpful and actually affects many different genes. Uh, there is um, the things like magnesium 3 and uh, 8, typically mm-hmm. taken in Need the evening that. because it can uh, cause some sleepiness in some people. Um, that has been published uh, to uh, make an impact. Um, And then uh, you know, looking at other things like curcumin. Uh, Curcumin can be uh, very helpful and has been used for thousands of years. It does decrease uh, the inflammation, of course. And then we also like a newer product called whole coffee fruit extract, um, which increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which has an anti-Alzheimer's effect. So those are just a few, but the reality is that the armamentarium in Alzheimer's is huge. You right. can improve your neurochemistry. Start by looking at what's actually driving the problem or driving the risk. And there are many things. And we've been told over the years, oh, there's nothing you can do to prevent, delay, or reverse this problem. That is absolutely not true. And multiple publications are showing that now. So that, in fact, there's a tremendous amount that you can do.
0: It's amazing. And for all of you listening, I'm sure you're encouraged by that. That's an incredible message of hope for Anybody out there suffering from Alzheimer's or even mild cognitive impairment, again, as Dr. Bredesen has said, there's so many options, there's so many choices, there's so many things to look into. You need something more integrative, functional, more personalized to really evaluate the factors that are driving the disease for you because they may may not be identical to the person sitting next to you or across the street. So it's really important to get that personalized prescription for power that I keep talking about over and over again and really understand what that means for you. And that's true with this, this particular disease as well. Dr. Bredesen, your first book was The End of Alzheimer's, was a New York Times bestseller, did incredibly well. Is there another one on the horizon?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the first one's now out in 31 languages. So I'm, I'm happy that people all over the world uh, are using this protocol and, and many thousands uh, now are, are on this. Uh, And so there is now a second one that will be out in August. Um, And this was when the first one came out, people said, okay, so we see that the science, we see that there is hope, we see that there are things that can be done, but we'd really like you to kind of focus down, get more detail. We'd like to know what websites do we go to? What products do we buy? How do we prepare our meals? What if we have need workarounds? All the details. Right. uh that again as someone who is coming out of the test tube uh these were things that that i wasn't you know i didn't know about at the time initially you know this is where we were literally coming saying hey but the, the test tube tells us to do this and we're mm-hmm. now seeing the force people get better and we published the first paper back in 2014. so this new one is all about the program so actually uh, uh random house has decided to entitle it the yeah. end of alzheimer's program
0: okay. uh, that's
1: their title uh, but I, but I understand their point. This is basically the program that people have asked us for. Please provide us with more details. And I should mention, uh, I had the great fortune of working with two people who are uh, who are working with this every day. Uh, one is Julie G, who who is at ApoE4 for herself, um, has done beautifully with her own cognitive decline, and now is mm-hmm. typically at the 98th percentile. She founded the website, ApoE4.info. There are 3,500 plus uh, people who are involved with that, people with ApoE4 oh, from all over the world. So she worked on this with me, as did my wife, uh, Dr. Aida Lachine-Redesen, um, who is an integrative physician. So the idea of having a triad uh, of a u- daily user who's been successful, a clinician, and a scientist, we thought was a wonderful opportunity and a unique triad that really can give us uh, the different angles on this that you may not get with uh, another book that's just by a, a single author.
0: Wonderful, and that book is out in August, is that correct? August. And. For all of you who are wanting to connect with Dr. Bredesen, who want to learn more, I know he's got his first book that's out or not, it's probably not your first book, but the last book that's out, which was The End of Alzheimer's. What are some other ways that they can connect with you or learn more about this? He's offered so much information just in these last 30 minutes, but anywhere else you would direct somebody who's interested um, maybe in connecting with you or your work or anything along those lines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So drbredison.com, you can go there. Um, also on Facebook, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Uh And uh, so, so that's one way. And then we're, what we're doing is we are uh, producing software that will allow us, because if you think about it, there these are complicated illnesses. You need to look at many different variables. And in fact, we too often will look at simple things like serum sodium, serum potassium, and then we say, oh, well, we don't know why you got this. And of course, an important part of functional and integrative medicine is looking at the very things, so-called root cause medicine. So we need such algorithms, such computer-based algorithms to look at all the various uh, variables and then to be able to target each one. So I'm working with a group called Apollo Health So you can also look at their website as well.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to join me today and to be on the show. This is such an important message for all of you who have watched or listened today. You know that this is something everyone needs to hear. So get in early, think prevention. Alzheimer's is not a hopeless disease, but it is a disease for women. So two out of three Dr. Bredesen told us today in terms of how it affects women. So a really, really, really important message. I want you guys to spread the word. Tell everyone you know, and let's get this thing beaten. So thank you, though, for joining me for this episode of Superwoman Wellness. And remember that we are now on Spotify as well. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. And for all of you, I will see you again next time.